What's up, Enterprisers? Welcome to another episode of the Enterprise Now podcast, where we shape the mindset of the high achiever to think like an entrepreneur. We talk with masters of the craft to get the cheat codes to success, helping elite enterprisers level up and maximize their brand. I'm your host, Elsie, the mayor. Now let's get to it. All right, Enterprisers, welcome to another edition of the Enterprise Now show. I'm super excited. We have Nathan Young with us. He's brilliant. Now, I only just met him outside of doing research and inviting him on the show, and I can already tell you he's about to drop some gems. So, Nathan, before we get into the goods and, and the gem drops and all the stuff, can I get an oh, yeah? Only if I get to do it like the oh, no, oh, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, Nathan, give us two minutes version of who are you? What are you doing in the, the past six months that's exciting? Look, like I'm a marketer. That's really what I am. In and out, I've been marketing for the last 10 plus years, but I'm also a marketer that was not a marketer professionally. I came back from like a VP of finance and like a management consulting role. I come from a very different angle. I'm not a creative guy. I didn't come from a creative agency. I have a very different perspective on how to operate a function. And realistically, you know, what's going on in the last, in the next six months, it's massive. My agency has grown from 14 to 25. We are hiring every single month. I'm seeing growth at 50 to 80% a year over year. And frankly speaking, everyone's going to be like, whoa, that's pretty crazy. I look, I, I, I chalk it up to one thing. We're just different. We're just not a creative agency. And so when people talk to us, it's almost like a, a reframing. It's like almost a little bit disruptive. You know, when you do cold calling and you use a, a reframe technique, it's kind of like when I go into marketing conversations, it's a reframing technique because we're just so different. I go, no, 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 no. We can focus on all creatives, but we got to focus on operations. Like what can you actually do? And I think a lot of companies forget about that. And it's incredibly refreshing when they hear someone that looks at it from an internal perspective versus this glossy first impression creative perspective. Now that's all valuable, but... That's our angle. That's different. Talk about differentiation. And your background is unique as well, coming from finance into this creative space as a non-creative. You got to unpack that a little bit. I think naturally I'm creative. I'm lucky. So I'm a, like an amateur photographer. I, I, I know how to use Photoshop. I've learned how to do composites myself. I'm a self top person. That's essentially how I almost got every single one of my roles in my entire life. And I think I'm blessed because I do know creativity is, is not something that some people can learn. Some people just have a very difficult time being creative, but I am overly a creative person as well. But I have all this experience in operations and finance that make me very structured as well. So if you want to talk about personality profiles, I'm an NJ, which means I'm supposed to be a general, like I'm very structured. But at the same time, I can be a photographer and get and really break out a frame to make sure that I bring a very artistic vision to certain things. And so I think that blend leads me to be a very interesting person for some of my clients to talk to, because again, it's not that same perspective where like, I'm really focused on the imagery and I'm really focused on the brand. I'm really focused on the visuals and the aesthetics. I am to a certain extent, but I always tell people like everything in life, right? 
everything in life, there's kind of like a point where the opportunity cost and the substitution cost, and they start to get to the point where it doesn't necessarily make sense for the aesthetics anymore because other things take precedent. Other things become more, more important in your organization. And I think that's why some creatives just fail. Right, because they're just like too focused on creative. It's really, really important, but there's like so many other factors in the organization that are just as important, and that can't always be the most important. It is important for a period of time, and I think that's what we emphasize the most. Right, when you do marketing, you fluctuate amongst priorities or initiatives. It's not this kind of steady state. When you're like an enterprise that's been in business for ten years and you're doing like ten million or more in, in revenue, yeah, it gets pretty stable. But on the way up there. It fluctuates because you don't have unlimited time, unlimited money, and a liberal like human resources to do everything. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to unpack because I heard you say your agency is growing from, I believe, you said 14 to 25. That sort of stable growth does not happen without first having structure in in place. Talk about that structure a little bit. I'm I'm just curious because I'm preaching it all the time. I'm kind of a hybrid as well, where I'm a singer songwriter. So on one end, I can write you a mean song. But I also have this engineering background where I'm really regimented, much like yourself. So and to your point, sometimes folks are very creative and they don't take care of the business side or the operations. Or conversely, they're really, really good with the operations, but they're just as boring as paint drying. So talk a little bit about some of the structure systems that you have at your agency that has allowed you to achieve this stable growth. First and foremost, before we even jump into that, I just want to say that's super cool that you're a songwriter. I don't know if anyone on that podcast has been listening and knew that. I didn't know that. That's super cool. And I just want to support that and say that out loud. So talking about our business and, and how we've grown and, and how we've done it, I hate to say this because it's probably been on every single podcast or every single book. When it comes to your business, it is really fundamentally the people you hire. I am incredibly blessed to have some amazing senior people with me who have been within my organization for over four years. Rudy, big call out to you. You know who you are. You've been with us since the beginning. And she's really my right-hand woman in the organization. And I think when you passed the 15 mark, you get to the point where essentially your organization really needs middle managers. It, it goes away from the flat horizontal organization, which I think a lot of startups like are all like, yeah, let's do like horizontal, let's be flat. And it's like, it makes sense. But the reality is scale causes issues, right? And scale causes issues, not just in like operations, like imagine like inventory management and shipping, but think about it just in terms of people. So a great example is I have eight or nine designers. I'm sorry, designers, if you're listening, we hire someone, right? But like, and then I also have a layer of marketing managers that deal with my clients. So can you imagine having nine different marketing managers talk to nine different designers? First of all, my designers are good at one thing, design. Some of them are really amazing communicators. Some of them are decent project managers, but I'm not hiring them for that. They're hiring them for their creative tactical skill set. So they're not going to enjoy nine points of contact to do their work. So realistically, at a certain point, scale dictates that there should be a middle manager. There should be a creative manager. There should be an art director. There should be someone in between that not only facilitates the prioritization of work, but also reviews that work and specializes that work on a middle manager level. And so that's why I'm not going to say that it was easy. It was not easy. It was difficult. I've been very lucky that I have someone like Rudy and my operations team has 
organically grown. And we have organically built on top of the systems. And I have given the autonomy to do that. So business owners, this, it is not easy to empower employees. Why? You're scared to fail. You don't make mistakes. And when you make mistakes, you put in the extra hours to do that. When someone else puts on the mistake, it's out of your control. You don't feel comfortable. So the reality is that there is no shortcut to this. You're going to have to give autonomy and you're going to have to sometimes do things in parallel. So this is something that I don't always tell my employees. Sometimes I give them a project knowing that there's a probability they might fail. And I will do that project alongside with them without telling them. And why do I do that is because depending on how critical that task is, I want to make sure that the project moves forward or that task or that initiative moves forward, whether that's operationally, internally, or for a client. But at the same time, I need them to learn. So I ensure success and I ensure they don't necessarily fail hard. They might fail, but they're not going to fail at the level of which it impacts the business. So I think you just have to commit to that investment. You have to commit to that investment that you're going to do more work. It's going to make you uncomfortable. But at the end, at the end of this tunnel, you will have what I have, which is hopefully some managers who are incredibly capable, but you're going to have to put some time and you're going to have to be uncomfortable. You're going to be happy as uncomfortable as they are. Remember that, right? They are just as uncomfortable. So remember, they don't get the profits. You do. They get a salary. So you have to also be mindful of the, the fact that they're uncomfortable. They're doing something new. They're doing something that maybe you didn't pay them for when they first hired because they're growing and you got to invest into that. And it is not a pleasant investment, <laughs> but you got to do it. So what was one specific thing that, that you can share that as you scale stands out as, man, that was a challenge and, and how did you get through it? I, I think it, it goes just back to that whole empowerment thing. So pre-COVID, we were on the same trajectory and then COVID happened and then we were flat. And then as soon as COVID stopped, we essentially went back on that trajectory. So we would have been like a 40 person agency now if we continued. And before all that, the reason we kind of hockey sticked was this one moment I had with an employee. I was a previous manager to her and she came to me and she just, she had like a heart to heart. I treat her almost like a daughter. I'm like her dad and her daughter. And, and so she just straight up said to me, she's like, Nate, you can't do everything. And if you want to do everything, don't be here. Like, don't, don't hire me. Don't have me. It makes no sense. So just either trust me to do it and let me fail or don't. And that was the moment where I felt things changed because I was like, she's right. She wants it. So let me just get out of my comfortable zone. Now that'll be said, that didn't happen overnight but it initiated this pursuit to empower my team members. And almost every other month, I would say I'm empowering them more. And it's incredibly uncomfortable. I think like this was the first time, I think when we broke 20 employees, it was the first time where I actually felt like I didn't have a connection with every single team member. And that was weird. I also don't necessarily have oversight on every single project that goes out. That's also weird because we're not small anymore, right? We have too many projects. Like at any given time, I think in the quarter of this year, we had six website projects going on on top of our retainer projects. So the overall task list we had was probably well over like 60 or seven weeks sometimes. So 
the this idea that I no longer had full visibility, like full like hands-on visibility of my work was incredibly uncomfortable as an owner, especially as a person who is incredibly prideful of my work. I'm now extending that pridefulness to my team and hoping they, they have that same quality. That is, that's just not an easy thing for anyone to do. That's like going to Tom Brady and just be like, you're going to coach this guy and you're going to let him play game. Like, as you. We're not going to tell anyone. <laughs> and that, that's not comfortable. It's not comfortable for anyone. Yeah, yeah. I love that example. I can just picture it in my mind. Some guy that has on his jersey and his number, his name, and his salary is depending on this guy performing. And he has to coach him, but he can't throw the ball. <laughs> exactly. Can you imagine? But imagine if he was the number one pick. So, you know, like everything under the sun says that they're capable, but you got to take that leap of faith, right? And just give them the opportunity to demonstrate, give them the opportunity to fail. So my example is, and it's the same example or same perspective I have over my child that I have about 18 months, is I don't want them to fall into the gutter. I just want to have guardrails. And the guardrails can't be narrow. They need to be broad enough. Right, because the the bouncing, the variance from where you're supposed to get a strike and the guardrails is where they learn. So if you put it too narrow, they don't learn. You let them fall in the gutter, you kind of risk something, so it's not worth it. But you got to give them that that variance. Nathan, what's your teaching style? Are you a hard driver? Are you a let people learn on their own, or what's your style? My style is, and it's actually a saying I have when I like actually when we hire people, I actually straight up say this. Rudy knows this because when she was hired, I call it a trust fall. But the trust fall is you going under the bus, knowing that I'll drag you out from under it. And it's kind of this like rough, rude, kind of crude perspective. But it's really this idea that I want every single one of my team members to always be uncomfortable being uncomfortable. I want them to be comfortable in that situation. I want them to be not anxious. I want them to really understand the feeling of being uncomfortable and then knowing that's how they feel and understanding how to process that so that they can achieve a goal. Because I think that's what happens with people who procrastinate. I think that's what happens with people who simply let their anxiety take over. It stagnates their growth, right? So when they get into a situation where they don't feel comfortable or they don't even believe they have a solution, meaning it's like a, it's like kind of like an unknown unknown to them. It doesn't even exist in their brain. They get into a, a, a kind of a, a psychological state where they're just stagnant. And instead of trying to at least even get closer to that goal, they stop or they move back. So for me, my teaching style, I guess would say be on the harder side, but I very much reassure and give security to my team. There's guardrails. <laughs> I'm there, but I'm not going to just give you the points and give you a strike. You got to get there. I don't care if you get one pin. I don't care if you get two pins. You're getting to the end of the lane, but I'm not pushing you. I'm not doing anything, but I'm making sure that you don't fail. You, you don't fall into that gutter. Now, do you find that some of your work when you're working with clients is educational? Are, are you teaching? Are you helping them see the possibilities both on the creative and on the operational side? Absolutely, because I, I feel like Marketing is one of these things where a lot of clients think they know enough to be dangerous, but they should understand that's our job as a marketer. So you know enough to be dangerous because we've told you or we've made you feel like you know enough to be dangerous. 
because that's our job. Like if you feel like that hypothetically means some other marketer has done their job, you have to realize there are a bunch of psychological studies that basically say that we, we essentially assume too much. <laughs> we assume that we are actually capable far more than we actually know. Even if our logic dictates that we don't know, we still feel like we do it. So the reality is that marketing in general for, I'm going to say, more than 90% of my clients is very much an educational journey, which is why they're probably hiring me. <laughs> like the reality that a lot of companies go, oh, I don't know where to start. And they go, well, where have you start? And they go, well, I've done this. And I, I can probably ask five or six questions within five minutes and I'll be able to identify why they're not being successful. I think a lot of times, and I've said this on every single one of my guest podcasts, like marketers, we're, like, we're the bane of our own existence. Like we kind of make our jobs harder because we make everyone think it's so easy because that's our job. We got to make things easy. We got to make things simple. We got to make the complex very easily consumable. And that just leads to this general belief that marketing is this skill set that anyone can do. But I think that's correct in the sense of like a tactical skill set. What I don't think it's correct is the prioritization of that skill set amongst the entire kind of realm or broad spectrum of marketing activities. So you can very much do a tactic and be kind of okay with it. But the real question is, is it really the best thing for you to be doing right now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a large part of that too, as I think about even what we do is having a coach or somebody who is outside of your operation that can see your shortcomings, that can see your gaps, that can see objectively that maybe what you're doing isn't working well for you. There, there's a ton of value in that, right? There is a ton of value because you're hiring a coach. There's even that part where psychologically you're paying this someone, so you should listen to them. But also just there's this idea that you are paying this person to ideally give you the best advice, which is great. What I can say is, is that even when people pay us, and just for everyone to know, like our retainers on our average on the upper end of four figures and, and usually in the five figures, even when people are paying us this much, they still want to design by committee. Right. So, so just, it, it's just the reality that it's human nature for everyone to be heard. It's human nature for every department to feel like their perspective is the priority. And, and they very much, again, just don't understand the full world. So in their world, they're correct. But in the grand scheme of marketing, they're probably incorrect. And, and a great example of that is a lot of business owners like to talk to every single person on their homepage. The reality is you can't because you end up alienating one group sooner or later. And I, I'll give an example. Actually, I think um, some people will enjoy this. Fusion restaurants are a great example of this. Imagine a fusion restaurant being kind of like your, your homepage. If you've ever been to a fusion restaurant, call it maybe like, let's do something crazy. Like Ethiopian meets Asian, like Chinese food. Okay. Neither the Ethiopians or the Asians... Chinese particularly, are going to go into this restaurant and be like, wow, you've crushed it. I totally understand the complexity of this palate and this, these flavors I'm seeing. What you end up happening is two different cultures and races coming into your restaurant and really just being disappointed. And that's why fusion restaurants have a hard time succeeding. Because at the end of the day, you're combining two very different demographics very different taste profiles, and you're slamming that into a homepage, the, the main dish. And both people just come out with mediocre outcomes. 
right? And so I think that's actually a great analogy of like a landing page. You speak the two, you're going to get one that's going to be slightly confused, or you're just going to get both that kind of get it, but aren't really convinced. And so I think that's why, like everyone in their mind has this idea and they just, they always think that they are the best in what they know. And therefore they want their opinions to be heard. And that's just, I think that's just really hubris and like human nature. All right. So Nathan, I'm going to put you on a spot here. Give the the listeners, the viewers, a, a two and a half minute masterclass on a skill or something that we can take away to incorporate into our business to tomorrow to grow? I think it's actually really, really simple. And what I would really recommend is having an incredibly tight customer feedback loop. The reason is because I think often a lot of business owners, as we grow or as you grow your business, you're always stuck in the business. You're not working on the business. So for a second, maximize what you've built by going back to your customers and just frankly asking them, hey, if I were to do something different, don't say better, just say different. What would that be? And make sure you ask every customer to provide some tangible feedback from that conversation. So start that conversation off with what would I do differently and take all that information and ask yourselves, are these the pain points or are these the things that I'm really focusing inside of my organization? And what am I doing to actually improve all these things? Or have I been improving? And have you even thought about it? I think is a great example. If you get a bunch of feedback and you look at it and you go, oh, I really actually haven't even had this on our radar. That means you probably don't actually know your ICP, your ideal customer profile, as much as you think you do. And so therefore, that's going to give you a bit of an ego bust, right? And that should hopefully give you enough logic to be honest and humble with yourself, have some humility and go, I should probably rethink about who I'm marketing to. I should rethink about how I'm positioning because I'm obviously off the mark. And the reason why you have to gather the feedback to come to this conclusion is because of your hubris. You're going to think you're already doing a good job, which is fine. You probably are. You probably already have a successful business. But you got to gather this feedback to really just bluntly say to yourself, there's a gap. And what am I doing to make sure I fill this gap? So before you mentioned that you guys are just different, what is that difference? What is it explained in words? What makes you guys different? I think a good example was we did a pitch to Kraft Heinz and it was for Jell-O. We were super excited. It was pre-COVID. For anyone that doesn't believe me, I have a full PO and everything. And we were like the only person that ever just not pitched them on new packaging. Because every creative agency is like, let's do new packaging. But I went to them and I was like, well, we can't do new packaging because I know probably you have like three, maybe four or five months worth of like packaging in storage which is what to them? It's a lot of money. It's also a lot of logistics, right? So if you think about it, like in order to change packaging, like what do you have to change? You don't just change packaging. Like that's, that, I think this is the issue with some creative, like a true creative people. They're like, let's just change packaging. It's like, okay, well, first of all, we'll get it printed. Two, we have a whole bunch of inventory. Two, three, we got to figure out what kind of packaging. Five, does this change our line? There's a bunch of implications around this. So realistically, is this something that we can do? The long answer is probably not. Maybe next year, maybe two years from now, actually. And so I think that was like a great example of how we were different because we were like the only ones who were like, no, let's keep the packaging. 
let's do something, let's maximize the packaging and let's just do something on a digital perspective where we don't have to touch the product at all, but we can revive the product in maybe a nostalgic way and engage customers. And so I think that was just like a, a perfect example where I think the people at Kraft Heinz were kind of shocked because I, I didn't come up with a packaging conversation right from the get-go. I think another example is, is simply the fact that like we very much focus on operations and people go, I don't even know what that means. I'm like, it's very simple. Are you an international business? We have some international businesses. They go, yes. I'm like, how many countries are you in? One of our, one of our clients is in, I think like well over seven countries. I was like, great. How many languages are you in? They're like, well, hypothetically, it's around four or five. I was like, fantastic. Tell me exactly what happens when you put something new on your website. We build the website. Okay. What happens afterwards? What do you mean? Well, you're in five different languages. So are you telling me you just have an AI thing that just prints out kind of whatever on your page? Oh, I haven't thought about it, but yeah, I know you haven't thought about it because I know a lot of companies don't think about this, right? But the fact is that when you have scale in marketing, you have operationally difficult challenges that you have to face every single time you produce an asset. And that's the operation thing. So that's a simplified kind of model, but this can go as deep as what happens in your marketing stack, what happens to the newsletters, what happens to the tracking of the newsletters, what happens to anything that we put out into the internet on social, how are we approaching that? And so a lot of the times, I think, again, people simplify marketing to the final outcome, which is great. The final outcome is, is an ad in a magazine. But what if that ad was a case study? And that case study is actually something that is a sales enablement tool. That's the salespeople use. And you're now working in some countries. So quick question. So that ad that we did in the United States that talks about a case study that was very successful that we've made into a sales enablement tool for John who works in California. Does the guy in Turkey have access to that? Does the guy in Paris have access to that? Is it in French? Is it in their native languages? And most of the times they go, no. So it's like, okay, so we've created these amazing assets. We're marketing these assets, but your international team have no access. And, and you actually have no triage process to ensure they have access. In fact, no one on the sales team even knows when new sales enablement tools are being created. And so this is marketing operations. And when I talk like that, I will honestly say, usually on a, on a team of salespeople and senior leadership, the salespeople are like, this guy gets it. Like he, he knows what I like bark at all the time because that's what happens. Marketing gets siloed, does their own thing. And honestly, operationally, it does not get triaged properly. And so operations falls apart. And that's why marketing, honestly, often is, is siloed is because there is no one focusing on operations. There's no one focusing on how marketing operates within the entire organization versus this like ridiculous pigeonholed inbound KPI perspective. Now, I'm curious to know, Nathan, what's the, the biggest business lesson you've learned over the years? I know there's many, but what's the one that stands out? The biggest business? Biggest business lesson. Oh, business lesson. Oh, this is an easy one. Don't just don't bother. Like, okay, when you start your business, you're going to have to work with people you don't like because you got to get it going. You got to cross that chasm. You got to make sure you got your own case studies and your own success track record. But once you do that, don't work with someone you don't like. It's not worth it ever. I, I mean it. It's just like not only I had a client who made some of my employees cry. Okay, that causes far more damage than it's what it's worth. Okay, because the cost to replace an employee, I think, don't quote me guys, but it's, it's like somewhere between like six to seven months worth of their salary. Okay, so 
if you have someone or a client who's bullying, who's rude, you got to really ask yourself, do you really need that? Or can you go find someone to replace that revenue? So often what I will do is I will keep them for as long as I need to, but I will replace the revenue stream. So I will essentially aggressively find a replacement client when that happens. And then essentially I will fire them immediately as soon as that contract's signed. And I have no remorse in that. And that's just because I have the biggest lesson I've learned is it is never worth it. It's not worth it for you. It's not worth it for your team. Yeah. How do you approach that conversation with the fired client? With the fired client? It depends on how bad they are. If they're really, really bad, I'll just be very honest with them. I'll go, hey, I'm sorry that I have to have this conversation, but it's honestly just not working out between us. I'm happy to provide you all of your work. I'm happy to send that all to you, but I'm no longer going to be servicing this. And this is our termination. And usually they're like, oh, uh, you know, like, oh, uh, and at the end of the day, they can they can hum and on they, all they want. But like, what I will simply say is, is that if anyone has the absolute personal disregard to do that to anyone, it doesn't really actually matter what they hum and on about. They're just probably not a good person. So I've, I've really learned that running my business is one, obviously something that I enjoy and, and I grow my team and that really makes me happy. But you know, just that happiness thing, it becomes more and more important, especially as you scale, because it's, it's really not worth it. It's not worth it for your team. And just as just as something else is a note, you will be judged by your team if you keep this client. So don't just think about it as like, oh, they need to suck it up, Buttercup. You're going to realize by doing this, you will likely create a slightly toxic work culture because your team will not feel like you are supporting them. And that will come back to you in tenfold, not in a great way. Yeah, totally agree. I think too, this is where focus and clarity comes in, right? Because if you're focused and you're clear on who you serve in the first place, you won't get bad clients. (laughs) I think unfortunately in, in our case, we get sold a dream and the dream is that we will be accountable for our work. So we define kind of a bad client as actually a client who really designs by committee and forces that because it becomes a really stupid exercise. And, and it is really probably the most useless thing you could do to hire our firm, have us produce the communications, the strategy, the direction, the creative, just for you to one, dick around, frankly speaking, by trying to be a marketer and be like, oh no, we gotta use these colors. Oh no, this copy isn't correct. There's some factual things that every client should do, but like, when it comes to copywriting, it doesn't really make sense unless they've copywritten themselves. And then it also comes down to this fact that they're slow and then they pitch and hold the process. So it just goes through this tiny little bottleneck and then we get blamed for efficiencies because they're like, oh, why did it take you like four weeks to do the sales enablement tool? I was like, well, I don't know. Why did it take you five days every time we sent you to ask for a review? So like riddle me that. And so unfortunately for us, like it, we try not to hire bad clients because I, I am pretty good at trying to figure out if they're good or nice people. But often they fall into this category, honestly, of just being too strong headed on design by committee and, and honestly just thinking that they're a marketer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's the biggest life lesson you've learned? So I'm recently going through a separation and that's a big thing for me to talk about. And the reason I talk about it is for you business owners, I will say never in my entire life have I not been money driven, like and not so money driven. I, I was very money driven all the way up to basically the last six months. 
And I would say right now, even more so, the only thing I care about is no stress. I just don't want any stress. I don't care how much money I make. Look, you got you to pay your bills. I get that. But the amount that I want to make versus the amount I want to make now is dramatically changed just because I've realized it's far more important to be with my daughter. It's far more important for me just to be happy. It's far more important for me to feel good as a person. And, and I think the best perspective that, that, that came out of my separation was my talks with my brother, where he said, you know, Nathan, if you want to live a good life, just think about what you want Naomi to think about you as. And just use that as your rock. And that was like a sobering moment for me because Naomi's not going to care if I'm a billionaire. She might, but she's really going to care if I'm at her ballet classes. She's going to care if I'm playing with her in her park. She's going to care if I'm helping her with math. And that doesn't take money. And that really, really sobered me up. It really kicked me out from this like really materialistic perspective. And I am very much now just driven with the purpose of this business is here because it's successful and I have great team members and I want to grow them. But more importantly, it's going to help me enable uh, my life so that I can spend more time with my family. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. I have two children, a 16-year-old daughter and an eight-year-old son. And I can tell you that they shift everything. They change the way you show up in the world. They change your perspective. So I can definitely identify with that shift for you that it's like, okay, there's, there's this thing is bigger, right? Than the size that I can grow my business. So that's really cool. And 18 months is a really, really fun age. Amazing age. And it goes by so fast. He gave me the cold shoulder for the first time. It was hilarious. I didn't even like, it was cute, but at the same time I was hurt. Like it was, it was a funny moment. It's like, how did you learn that? Like, where did you get that from? <laughs> awesome. Well, I've had a, a, a fantastic time talking with you, Nathan. If people want to reach out to you, learn more about, find your audience, learn more about you and what you guys do, how can they do that? Yeah. So if anyone is a big fan of Instagram, you can find me at fya.marketingbytes. That's really where I post all my reels and, and some of my content. If you're interested in learning about the business, it's www.findyouraudience.online. So it's two separate things. Like one is just me like literally spewing into the camera. The other one is our actual business. And then also you can find me on LinkedIn at Nathan Young, which is spelled last name Y-E-U-N-G. It's probably only one marketer that I think has that name. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys can essentially find me there. Shoot me a message if you want. Shoot me a message on Instagram. Happy to, to be of assistance. I, I love teaching and I love really giving out a lot of information. Cool, cool. Well, I appreciate the time, Nathan, and we will talk with you soon again, hopefully. Well, anytime, sir. Alrighty. Thanks, Nate. If you got value from today's show, we want you to join the Enterprises Elite email list for more nuggets and resources. And remember, no excuses, just execution. Go get it.